Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Everybody dies, don't they? Everybody dies, don't they? Isn't that so? You tried to get into the locked drawer today, didn't you? The Shadow on the Moor by Stuart Strauss. The stillness of the room was broken only by the clicking of a typewriter, which went on uninterruptedly for some time. Finally, a man arose and, stretching himself, yawned and spoke to his companion. It's too hot to work tonight, and besides, who could write a horror story on a night like this? The other man raised his eyes from his book. I suppose it should be thundering, lightning and raining, torrents with a wind that whistles round the house tops. Come on, let's hit the hay, Jerry. When he had finished his preparations for bed, Jerry Jarvis slipped out upon the balcony of the inn for a final cigarette. He stood there silent, gazing off across the moor. The night was very still, and the moon flooded everything with a soft silvery light that brought all out in a marble whiteness, a softness that hid the grime and the dirt, and gave the commonplace an air of beauty unseen by the glare of day. There was only the faintest hint of a breeze that soft as midnight velvet whipped his dressing gown around his legs and made the trees bend ever so gracefully, ever so slightly, seeming to bow and quiver like dancers on a polished ballroom floor. Jarvis was silent, rapt, alone, and lost in the beauty of the night. For a long time he had heard of this section of desolate country with its memories and mementos of a lost race. No other part of England held its savage charm. Jarvis had come here seeking new material, new colour and new ideas. He had been stagnating, before, to him, mystery had meant the East, the Orient, but here at home, in the quiet of old England, was more mystery, more allure than he had ever known. Far away, across the moonlit bleakness of the moor, were the ruins, that mass of toppled columns and rough-hewn slabs set in crude circles. The stones glistened mistily and threw huge, sprawling shadows beneath them like pools of blood on a silver tray. Broken only by the whispering of the trees, the stillness gripped Jarvis, held him tense, expectant, waiting. But for what? For there was only the stillness and the soft rustle of the night wind among the trees. As Jarvis was about to toss his finished cigarette over the balcony rail and return to his room, 
He paused and glanced sharply across the empty lawn. He'd seen something. He didn't know what. There was movement, where but a moment before had been naught but moonlit emptiness. He'd heard nothing, but he was conscious of another presence. He looked out again across the moor. All was as before, but here, beneath the balcony, was something. Someone. He had caught but the fleeting glimpse of a shadow moving, where before had been but nothingness. It was a shadow, the dim silhouette of a woman. The time was long past midnight, and the inhabitants of the inn were all asleep. What was a woman doing here, alone on the moor at this hour? The sight of something alive here in this deserted place, and at this hour, made him shiver. It was so out of all keeping with his thoughts and the place. Icy fingers of dread clutched his heart. Then he shrugged his shoulders and smiled. It was nothing. Some tourist out to see the moor. But what was a woman doing here alone at this hour? Nonetheless, here she was, moving slowly across the silvery waste towards the ruins that were so white and still in the glow of the dying moon. Jarvis rubbed his eyes, shook his head, and looked again. The shadow was still there, but becoming fainter and more distant. He paused, and suddenly a thought came to him. Shadows were cast by bodies. They were mere reflections of a concrete shape. Perhaps a wind-blown tree had cast it. But the shadow, which seemed a woman, was bodiless. There was only the shadow and no figure. There were now no trees near the shadow to cast such strange reflections. To find that the shadow was actually bodiless brought back all of his first terror, the sense of dread that he had first experienced. This was not earthly, it was uncanny, impossible. Yet his eyes told him that the impossible was fact. Through his mind raced all the tales he had heard of this lonely, lovely country, of things that should be dead, but lived, things spoken of only in whispers and never to be mentioned. The shadow was moving towards the ruins. What was happening here beneath his window? Strange, weird, terrorizing. There was but one thing to do. Follow. Silently he dropped over the rail of the low balcony, caught up with and followed behind the shadow of the woman, if a woman it were. It seemed to Jarvis that this ghostly pursuit lasted for hours. Now he would lose it and would wait, then, in a few moments, he would see the dim outlines again, before him, always moving toward that heap of rocks, the ruins that had held his fancy with their starkness. Now and then clouds scudded across the face of the moon, and the moor took on strange lights and patches of colour. On and on he followed, and suddenly stopped dead still, for in the place of the one shadow there now were many, all hurrying in the same direction towards the ruins, bodiless shapes that moved noiselessly before him. Now that they were nearing the ruins, Jarvis could make out how crude they were, how rough-hewn, 
Yet withal they held a subtle sense of majestic power, of latent evil, a sense of darkness and decay, a sense of age and forgotten secrets. He wondered who were the people that had built them, what strange gods they had worshipped here, and how many savage cries of exultation had risen on the still moonlit air and echoed far across the now deserted moor. From out of the silence came a weird sound, then music, soft and low in the distance, soft and yet with an eerie strain that chilled his blood and echoed in his brain. The music increased its beat and time, and in it were savagery and cries of lust and forbidden desires. The shadows, with Jarvis close behind, were approaching the ruins, coming closer, ever closer, and the moon, now setting in the west, cast pale rays on the rude stones that lay sprawling in drunken rings. The music became more terrible, tore at his brain like iron fingers. Strange voices whispered of uncanny, revolting mysteries. Obscene shapes floated before his eyes. Ever, ever the music hammered at his brain. He stumbled and nearly fell. The gibbering in his ears increased, became more awful, more degrading, more passionately revolting. The music throbbed through all his senses. Frenzy swayed him and swept away his last touch of wisdom. He was a primate, one of the first men, uncivilized, terror-stricken, back in the dawn of time, back with black terror and the rolling drums. He gave way to the madness of the music, cast aside his garments and ran as naked as the first man after the shadows that were converging in a dark mass toward the narrow entryway between the two huge, rough-hewn pillars. With a cry of exultation, Jarvis sprang after them, and then it seemed to him that the whole world was shaken by a thunderclap. A heavy weight struck across his shoulder. He moved forward, stumbled, and fell, as through a mist he saw flickering lights and heard hoots and bellows, and in his brain echoed screeches and catcalls. The music roared into a terrifying crescendo, then blackness and oblivion came upon him. He awoke to painful consciousness in the grey of an early dawn, shivering and cold, surprised to find himself here alone, naked upon the grey and barren moor. How had he gotten here? Then memory came back to him. He recalled how he had run screaming naked in the moonlight, remembered the shadow and the horror of the ruins. He looked up and saw he was lying not more than five feet from the entrance. Seen in the light of dawn, the piles were still sinister, but not horrible. A mass of grey tumble-down rocks and crude broken columns, Sinister, but surely no terror could lurk within them. Soon Jarvis located his cast-off clothing and wearily started to return to the inn, which he could see in the distance, but surely not the distance he had come on the preceding night. Shakily he laughed, for he must have been running round in circles. He decided he would tell no one of his nocturnal adventures. Unobserved, he gained his room, and after bathing and dressing he joined his friend for breakfast. 
Nothing was said concerning his experience, and in the afternoon they returned to London. Once more at home, Jarvis plunged into work with a new vigour, striving in it to erase from his mind the events of that night upon the moor, the night with all its unexplained mysterious happenings and horrors over which brooded those aged, ageless ruins. Slowly, as time passed, the thing began to slip from his memory, to be recalled only on moonlit nights when he had stayed too long over his books. As he was reading the paper one morning, he ran across an item that had once attracted his attention and caused him to remember too vividly things he wished to forget, things that had tugged at his mind, despite his desire to let them slip into the place of unwanted memories. The item was dated at the little village where he had spent the never-to-be-forgotten time. Dead man found upon the moor. Early this morning the body of Charles Gilbert, living at the Blue Boar Tavern, was found on the moor near the ruined temple, naked, and his head crushed by a mammoth rock apparently fallen from the ruins. How such a huge slab had been dislodged is one of the mysteries that surround this case. Near the body were found the night-clothes of the dead man. No motive for the crime was apparent. The mere fact of the body's being here has only deepened the mystery. Gilbert was a famous student of pre-Druidistic culture and remains. To Jarvis came an overwhelming desire to revisit the moor, to see again its sinister ruins and the bodiless shadows. He wished to solve, if possible, the enigma hidden behind those rings of crouching stones. Here was something deadly, something dangerous that had taken human life and would, beyond all doubt, be unappeased until more had fallen under its malevolent spell. Quietly he packed, as if fearing he might change his mind, and returned to the little inn that nestled on the border of the sombre moor, where such strange events had taken place. He found the place almost deserted. The mysterious death of Gilbert had frightened away the casual tourists. The innkeeper was pathetically glad to see Jarvis. He bustled up, and after having arranged with him about his room, he asked, "'And what you doing here, Mr. Jarvis?' "'I came up for a rest and a little quiet, Johnston.' "'Well, you'll get it here, sir. No one comes here any more after Mr. Gilbert's death, sir. It's the moor. She frightens them. She's bad as the moor. No one knows her secrets, and if they do learn, well—' They don't come back, sir. Jarvis looked at him for a moment, and then broke the silence that followed the innkeeper's last remark. W what do you know about those ruins? Well, Mr. Jarvis, not much, sir, but I know this. I wouldn't go there for a million pounds, I wouldn't. There's things there, sir, that a man better not talk about. There's death there. And worse. Sure, don't be an ass, Johnston, said Jarvis crossly and climbed the stairs to his room. After his dinner, Jarvis strolled towards the village, which lay at no great distance from the inn. Lights glimmered yellowly through shuttered windows. At every house the door was strongly barred. As the dusk deepened into darkness, the few people who were upon the streets disappeared 
and except for the glow of a few poor street lamps, the village was dead and deserted. Jarvis returned to his lodging, ready to take up his nocturnal vigil. He sat in the unlighted room, trying to pierce the mystery that lay out there on the silent moor. Downstairs the inn clock struck two. The fire that had played so merrily upon its hearth was sending out its last dying rays, and the lights flickering over the walls made ghost-like figures that danced and rolled like souls in torture. Jarvis arose with a sigh, and opening his casement windows he stepped out upon the balcony. The air was cold, with a touch of winter in its fingertips, brighter even than that other night, six months before. Shivering slightly, he stood waiting, with his eyes intent upon the patch of lawn where first he had seen the shadow which had no body. Very slowly time passed. Twice he had heard the clock below stairs strike the hour. Finally, Jarvis felt certain that nothing would occur this night, went to bed, and at once fell asleep. Dream after dream pursued each other through his brain, each more horrible than the last. Queer, bloated things danced with witches, and a monstrous hairy being without eyes performed strange rites. The eerie music of the moor echoed in his brain, and in all these dreams the ruins had their grim and terrifying part, silently, broodingly overlooking the obscenity within the circle of crumbling rocks. He awoke in a cold sweat of terror and lay for some time almost fearing to return to sleep, but finally he dropped off into untroubled rest. After a meagre breakfast, he mapped out his procedure for the day. He had a letter to write, and then the rest of the day to inspect the ruins. So, after posting a letter to a firm in London, he shouldered his knapsack of lunch and went to spend a day upon the moor. When he had reached the ruins, he stood and inspected them carefully. On that sunshiny morning the grey pile of rock looked very peaceful. Vines and mosses grew here and there over them. On some of the stones were crude carven figures and designs half obliterated by storm and decay. As he was walking around the circle of broken rocks he soon saw the gateway through which he had plunged on that never-to-be-forgotten night. He entered and found himself in a hollowed circle which was several inches below the level of the moor. Nothing was visible except hard-packed earth. Carefully he searched for footprints, but found none. Then, from the inside, he examined diligently each post and stone for some sign of recent use, but again he drew a blank. Giving up his quest for the time, he ate his lunch and then continued the search as fruitlessly as before. As far as appearances showed, there had been no one here for ages, but here a thought struck him. Before the death of Gilbert, the ruins had been frequently visited by tourists, and yet there was no sign of them. Certainly this was queer. It was a puzzle he couldn't solve. Tiring of his useless search, he left the ruins and started for the village and the inn. As he reached the entrance of the ruins and stooped over to pick up his knapsack, he noticed, hidden in a crevice between the stones, 
a fragment of paper. He picked it up and looked at it closely. It was dirty, torn and weather-beaten, a leaf evidently torn from a notebook, but the paper was small and could very easily have fitted into the pocket. It had been carelessly torn, for only a part of the sentence was visible. The handwriting was neat and painstaking. This scrap of writing had neither beginning nor end. Discovered secret today. We'll return for further investigation tonight. The altar is... Then came the tear, running clear across the page. In the still remaining upper corner were the initials C.G. Evidently the dead man on the moor had found something that had eluded Jarvis. The mention of the altar puzzled him. Surely the matter was becoming more involved, more mystifying. Jarvis was as much lost in darkness as he had been before. The thing had a deeper look. He could see no beginning and no end. Placing the scrap of paper in his wallet and turning the jumble of thoughts over in his mind, he returned to his lodgings. As he opened the door, Jarvis was impressed by the bright hospitality of the place. The inn's room was cheerily alight. A huge fire blazed and flickered on the hearth, and around it, seated in the semicircle, were some of the village worthies. The smoke of their pipes wreathed about their heads. It is, said Jarvis to himself, like a page straight out of Dickens. The opening of the door caused them to turn and stare at him and in the memorable manner of all villagers they spoke to him courteously. Little Johnson, the innkeeper, bustled up and made a place for him around the circle, and when Jarvis had been made comfortable with a cigar and glass of steaming toddy, the innkeeper introduced him. This is Mr. Jarvis, a writing gentleman who wants to know somewhat about the moor. Mr. Jarvis, uh, these are the mayor and the select men of the village. There was a silence for some time as though all were plunged deeply into thought. Finally, an old greybeard, the mayor, shook his head and spoke. There ain't none of us here that knows much about us, sir, N nothing at all, except George here. And George, he can't speak, poor fellow, because he's dumb. Jarvis followed the pointing finger and saw, huddled in a corner, as close to the fire as possible, a wisp of a man so emaciated and dried up that he looked like a mummy. Countless centuries seemed to have passed over his head. How old he was, Jarvis couldn't judge. The countenance was terrifying, not a face at all, but a ghastly caricature of a human face. Always, Jarvis thought, it would haunt his dreams. Dreadful, worse than bestial, it leered at him from across the room. The mouth, a flabby gash from which saliva trickled down the chin, moved constantly, emitting little clucking noises. The eyes fascinated Jarvis like the eyes of a snake. They were round, full, nearly opaque, of a dull grey glassiness shot with fine red lines. "'Why, he's blind as well as dumb!' exclaimed Jarvis. "'That he is, sir!' He walked too late on the moor one moonlight night and saw the shadows. The last word shattered all of Jarvis's fast-disappearing equanimity. So the shadows were common gossip. The shadows, he exclaimed. Yes, sir. The haunt the moor near the ruins and mean death, or worse, to such as see them. But George isn't dead. No, sir, he ran away before he heard the music, and don't you think he would be better dead? 
There be strange things on the moor, cries and shouts and lights where there ain't nothing nor nobody. I tell you, sir, we stay clear of the moor on the moonlight nights, sir, in the summer and late fall. Rest of the time nothing happens. It's best not to go out of doors on them nights. Them ruins is terrible. There be haunted places, and it be wise not to go anywhere close to them, sir. I warned Mr. Gilbert, him that was killed, you know, but he wouldn't pay no attention to me. And they got him. Who are they? asked Jarvis, sensing that he was getting to the crux of the matter at last. There be shadows, sir, shadows, they ain't got no bodies, so I hear. I ain't seen them yet, praise God. Shortly after this, Jarvis, tiring of the now commonplace conversation, excused himself, and leaving the circle round the fire, went to his room. Switching on the light, he noticed a package lying on his table. It was the book he'd ordered from London, entitled Pre-Druidistic Ruins in England. Sitting himself in a chair beside the shaded reading light, he was soon deeply engrossed in his purchase. As he read on and on, he stopped with a jerk, and then re-read more carefully the following two paragraphs. Perhaps the most interesting of these ancient ruins are those at Humbledon, which are the earliest known, so far as we have been able to trace. How far back beyond the Druids and their religion these ruins of another race and age go, uh, we can only estimate. It is, in fact, almost impossible to tell. There is another factor that makes the piles at Humbledon of exceeding interest to students. While it is, as we have stated before, the oldest of the ruins, it is, strangely, the best preserved. And so far as investigation can go, uh, there is no sound reason for this being the case. The carving in most cases is remarkably clear, and the dancing ring almost in its original state. Here, however, we encounter the most peculiar factor in these remains. While the dancing ring is very wonderfully preserved, the moon altar, which is the distinguishing feature of most pre-Druidistic piles, is missing. The moon altar in all similar ruins discovered is a huge stone carved in the shape of a new moon. From all evidence we can gather, the victim, or the sacrifice, to term it more fitly, was tied between the horns of these altars, and then sacrificed by the sacred knife that is shown in many carvings. It seemingly carried a huge crescent-shaped blade, and must, from the pictures, have had an edge like a razor. In most cases the altar is found in the exact centre of the dancing ring. There has been intensive search made for the one at Humbledon, but so far without satisfaction. The absence of the altar in this, the best preserved of all pre-Druidistic remains, makes one of the most fascinating studies for the student of these things. As he finished reading, Jarvis remembered the slip of paper he had found on the moor early that morning, the torn scrap that ended so suddenly. The altar is. What could the rest of the sentence be? What was lost by his not having the remaining fragment? Undoubtedly Gilbert had found the answer to the puzzle and the answer to the great secret of the moor, the secret that had eluded all the other students and archaeologists. Why, here in the best preserved of all these ruins, was there no moon altar? Even in the most ravaged of the others, the altar was conspicuous, but here none could be found. At last Jarvis arose and stretched himself, 
He was cramped and tired. He looked at his watch. It was after two. He had sat engrossed in his reading longer than he had realised. Pulling on a sweater, Jarvis opened his casements and stepped upon the balcony. Again it was moonlight, for this was the season of the moon, when bright nights were common and the people of the village kept behind barred doors. The moor was white, cold, and apparently tenantless. The night was very still. Not even the breath of a breeze stirred in the trees, and the shadows of the buildings and the shrubbery were solid black patches of darkness on the silver lawn. Over the moor, far in the distance, were the ruins, clear-cut and white beneath the moon. But there was always about them, Jarvis thought, a majestic power holding threats and a menace of dark deeds, still unfulfilled. He stood looking intently at the patch of lawn where he had first seen the shadow. He waited, what seemed to him hours, then, as his glance wandered and came back, he saw it, the shadow. Again it was a woman who moved apparently stealthily across the lawn, but over the moor ever toward the ruins. Stealthily Jarvis followed after her. Emulating Ulysses, he had stuffed his ears with cotton, because he had no desire to hear the throb of the music that turned his blood to flame. On and on he followed the ghostly chase. As before he pursued the shadow, now losing it in some patch of darkness, now seeing it once more as it crossed an open place, on and on, keeping well behind the bodiless woman. Though he could not hear, he could sense that now the music was swelling out over the moor. Because of the cotton in his ears, he remained unmoved. The pace of the shadow quickened and he hastened after it. They were now at the gateway. For some time Jarvis had been noticing the growing number of shadowy forms. The space before the entrance to the dancing floor was crowded with wriggling, hurrying black shapes. The strangeness of being able to see all this that no other living person except dumb George had ever seen thrilled Jarvis deeply. But then suddenly a thought came to him. The sight had made that other both blind and dumb, yet he himself was not affected in the least. What was the reason for this? Its mystery eluded him, but he dismissed it from his mind and sped on after the shadows. He could tell from the way the shadows were moving that the music was now booming on the air, full of hate and lust and darkness. The very thought made him think of those eerie phantasmagoria of the Grand Guignol. They were now at the very threshold of the dancing floor. Something grasped Jarvis by the shoulders and hurled him through the gateway. Then, hearing a crash behind him that penetrated even through the cotton in his ear, so close he was to it, he turned and saw a huge slab that had fallen from the top of the archway and now lay in the exact centre of the entrance. It seemed to him that the huge stone had an intention, a purpose, a malevolent design. Its fall seemed time to the fraction of a second. Had it not been for that impetus from unseen forces, had he been but a moment slower, 
he would have been crushed to pulp beneath its ponderous weight. As he now glanced at it, he thought it seemed to have a personality, a soul old and evil, longing to crush to atoms the lives of those who entered its once sacred portals. The mystery of Gilbert's death upon the moor had now been solved. He had been but a moment too late to cross the threshold. Jarvis swung around again and faced the hard-packed earth of the dancing floor. Here the shadows were gathered in a ring, circling, whirling to the soundless music, now turning this way, now spinning that. In complete silence, yet in a mad frenzy of motion. As Jarvis watched them it seemed as though he were becoming paralysed, and too something was affecting his eyes. Objects became blurred and hazy, yet the shadows themselves became more and more distinct. With a rush the shadows came together, and in a mass the dance grew wilder and more abandoned. Suddenly they stopped with shadowy arms uplifted. In the exact centre of the dancing floor something was rising, inch by inch it seemed to struggle through the hard-packed earth. Finally, Jarvis could partly distinguish what it was, a huge stone, and by the paleness of the moon now dimming on the horizon's edge, he could make out its odd shape, which seemed like a monstrous half-moon lying on its back, with its two sharp horns pointing skyward. Beside it was another shadow with arms uplifted, that of a man, huge and powerful. Jarvis had never seen a man of such stature. He could see the shadow's giant torso, the swelling chest, the pillar-like legs, and the arms long and muscular with great long-fingered prehensile hands, all this cast in high relief against the whiteness of the altar, for altar he now knew it to be. At last the moor had given up to him her deepest secret, and he knew too why the search of all but Gilbert had been unsuccessful, and Gilbert had paid with his life for the secret. The shadow man lowered his arms, and the multitude of shades threw themselves on their faces as the altar finally came to rest upon the surface of the floor. To Jarvis it seemed as if thick smoke rolled before his eyes. As through a cloud he saw the shadow man rise and turn toward him and point a commanding finger. For the first time real terror smote him, and he knew such fear as few men have ever known. He tried to turn and run, but it was as if he were turned to stone, as heavy and solid as those silent grey rocks about him. Amid the gathering blackness he saw the shadows. Now dimmed spring suddenly upon him, he felt hot breaths upon his cheeks. Shapeless, shadowy hands tore at him, strong hands they were. Surely such strength could not belong to bodiless shadows, but he could see no one, just a rolling mass of deeper blackness in the mist before his eyes. The shadows overbore him and carried him along. Strong arms lifted him up, and now he caught a stench as of something long dead and of rottenness beyond human ken, yet not dead, 
but alive. For the dead have no strength, and here was strength abundant. High, high aloft he was lifted up, up to the altar. The mist that had been before his eyes cleared, and he could still feel unseen shadowy hands that tugged at him, pulled at his feet. Up he went, until he could plainly see the fearful carvings on the altar, too horrible even to glance at again. He felt himself wrenched and stretched out and out, and then found himself strung between the horns of the mighty altar. The moon had almost set, and it was throwing its last dim rays across the plain. Unseen fingers tore the cotton from his ears, and at last he heard what he had dreaded to hear, that uncanny, bestial music of the ruins. It was playing now softly, now rising in a hellish crescendo, while all about him danced the shadows noiselessly, ceaselessly. He turned his eyes away and looked up. Towering over him was the tremendous man, or rather the shadow of some giant from the ancient past, when the world must have been young and terrible. Stretching his arms toward the dying moon, the man knelt. The music ceased with a throb and the shadows prostrated themselves in a ring about the altar. The sudden silence beat on Jarvis's frayed nerves more horribly than the din of the music. Long it lasted, this silent prayer to the dying moon. But finally, the huge shadow man arose, reached below Jarvis and took from its hiding place a knife. There was nothing shadowy, about the knife. It flashed fire in the light and glistened evilly before his eyes. Fascinated, Jarvis watched the shadowy arm lift the crescent blade, point foremost toward the moon, hold it still, then lift it again, now hilt foremost, holding it quiveringly high in the air. Down came the mighty arm towards Jarvis's chest. He saw it begin slowly, oh, so slowly, down, on, down, nearer. Then the moon set, and all was blackness and stillness on the moor. From a London paper, noted novelist disappears. The mysterious disappearance of Gerald Jarvis, one of England's most noted authors, has caused one of the biggest sensations of the day. Mr. Jarvis was spending a weekend at Humbledon on the moors. According to Edward Johnson, the innkeeper, Mr. Jarvis had sat in the main room of the inn until late, and then gone to his room. From there he disappeared. His bed had not been slept in. Nor had he undressed for the night. Mr. Jarvis had no enemies, and the police are unable to find a clue to his whereabouts. This is the second tragedy of the kind in the little town in as many months. The old wives of the village whisper of strange things on the moor, and say that Jarvis and Gilbert, the man found murdered last month, knew too much about the ruins on the moor. However, the police laugh at such ideas and believe that Mr. Jarvis was a victim of foul play. The Authors' League has offered a reward of a thousand pounds for information as to his whereabouts. 
Everybody dies, don't they? Everybody dies, don't they? Isn't that so? You tried to get into the locked drawer today, didn't you? You tried. How do the dead come back, Mother? What's the secret? So that was The Shadow on the Moor by Stuart Strauss, published in 1928. Now I got this, um, this is the bit where I talk about the author and I say something about the story, some of the connections and resonances. Now, um, for the 14% of you people who don't want to hear this, just stop now and go and listen to something else. I've done hours and hours of stories, so please feel free to leave. I won't be offended. Um, so... I got this story from the British Library Tales of the Weird, the volume edited by Katie Sower, um, Circles of Stone, Weird Tales of Pagan Sites and Ancient Rites. So I've actually got this subscription to the British Library series. You can get one for classic detective fiction as well, which I was thinking about doing, but you end up with too many books to read, really. But um, this is one that comes out, um, and it's very modestly priced, and... Um, they do one every month, so I pay a tenner a month and I get a book. Amazing. So let me tell you about Stuart Strauss. There's very little information, says Katie Saw, the editor, available at Strauss. Even E.F. Blyler's comprehensive volume, Science Fiction, the Early Years, 1990, simply says no information in regard to him. Strauss, uh, who was, which was presumably a pseudonym, good point, is known to us solely through his three publications in Weird Tales, two in 1928 and one in 1934. The Clenched Hand. 1928 is a supernatural murder mystery, while The Soul Tube, 1934, is an occult science fiction tale. The Shadow on the Moor, published in February 1928 of Weird Tales, who described it as a creepy tale of the pre-Druidic ruins of England out on the moor were dancing in strange world music and death. That happens, you know, dancing strange world music and death, called a New Age rave. Uh, those were the days. <clears throat> but, um, so i tell you one thing about him, he's an American. How do you know, Tony? Well, you may have got this. Certain things about his language. Um, so he says it, it's very similar to British English, and he's clearly trying to write British, a British thing, but he says gotten, which young people these days have now started to say. In fact, little children play in American. They'll be talking in a normal accent, and then when they do play, because they've got so much American kids' TV, they start talking with American accents. It's utterly weird. Uh, but yeah, and many, like, we never used to say, can I get? We used to say, can I have? But now it's ubiquitous now that young people in Britain will go, can I get a, rather than can I have a, which is an American usage. Uh, I'm not decrying this, I'm just I'm just noting it. So, uh, yeah, he says gotten, which although young people do say that in the UK these days, it, it was never a thing uh, until probably about 10 years ago. And then uh, he says toward, rather than towards, what you find is that British writers tend to say towards, and they put an S on it, <clears throat> and um, Americans don't. And Americans tend to prefer around, whereas British writers say round. Other things... He thought that a village had a mare. It don't. And he thought that the stones may have ivy on them. No vines. Uh, no, 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 no. No vines. It's too cold. Uh, we don't have vines. Briars, maybe, potentially, but uh, um, ivy, potentially. But probably nothing. And the carvings, of course. I mean, it's, it clearly hasn't been to many stone circles. I mean, you know, the, the, the two rings of drunken things, that was pretty well observed. Um, I'm not kind of diss the guy, I'm just saying uh, that those were clues to me of him. So in our search for um, Stuart Strauss, which probably just goes this far and no further, but if any of you want to take up this search, 
that's my little hint for you. Look across the water in the United States, and I would say the US rather than Canada. So um, in the US, this guy, uh, and if we read these other stories, we may have other clues as well. Didn't you think it was like uh, The Horror Under Penmire by Adrian Coles, which I did not long ago? Uh, sort of um, written, that story's written a couple of decades afterwards. Also, I felt there was a strong Lovecraftian influence there. So in, in the Horror Under Penmire, this guy goes to a Cornish village, uh, which is um, full of inbred um, rustic people, um, because that's how people think it's like in the countryside. Uh, and uh, it, it's a trope, isn't it? Uh, it's a trope of, of folk horror. Um, and yeah, everybody in the countryside is mentally, is inbred and mentally de deficient or has something wrong with them. And of course, you know, painting that picture of the poor, unfortunate chap, um, I suspect you couldn't write that these days. But, 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 but. So I felt quite Lovecraftian. <clears throat> Remember that Stuart Strauss had contributed to Amazing Stories, so he's going to know the work of Lovecraft without doubt. And also, Lovecraft and his circle were certainly not above placing um, stories in, and even Poe, think of the fall of the House of Usher, um, feels English. Although, you know, some of his other stuff feels more European, but certainly European anyway. And Lovecraft, and Clark Ashton Smith, I think we did The Nameless Thing. Um, or something from the vault. No, the nameless thing, nameless offspring. That was one of the one, and that's set in some kind of remote moor in Cornwall. Uh, of course, this could have been a moor anywhere in the country. I've just done plug plug, the Hound of the Baskervilles um, for the Classic Detective Stories podcast. So you want to nip over there now? If you, uh, yeah, just cl the Classic Detective Stories podcast. You should find it. I find no problem googling that and finding it. But it maybe knows who I am. Um, of course, it knows who you are. It knows what you like, who you are, where you live, that you like baked beans on toast with cheese and a bit of Branson pickle, which I do. Uh, it knows all of that. Um, and uh, it certainly knows who I am. So it may not know who you are. It will know who you are, but it might not know you. I'm losing myself now, aren't I? So, um, okay, yeah. So, yeah. So I'm used to these wild West Country moors. So I thought I'd make it a bit northern. Uh, there's um, there's standing circles all over the UK um, on wild moorland places up in Scotland, Orkney, Callanish in, in the Isle of Lewis, or Kilmartin. If you ever go to Argyle, go to Kilmartin. That is a knockout place. Um, don't forget the Pictish stones either in um, Angus and places like that, um, where some of my ancestors were from. Um, actually, not quite as not North Perthshire really, but. Um, not quite as north as Angus. Anyway, so we're going to Orkney this year, I think. I hope to, uh, We hope that. It's proving quite difficult to book, but we hope to get up there to look at some standing stones and prehistoric ruins and stuff like that, Stone Age ruins. Nothing can beat a Stone Age ruin. I'd love to do a modern antiquarian like Julian Cope, and, uh, who did that book called The Modern Antiquarian, where around all, I think, all of the stone circles in the UK and uh, visited them all and had a really grand time. And then um, Anya Maroney, who is um, in our book club, who is perhaps the captain of our book club. She may not know that, but that's how I look at her. And she, um, I don't know if she's a custodian of the um, of the Douth complex in the uh, Boyne Valley. So hit some Irish stone circles as well. And let's not stop there. Let's, let's head down to Brittany and go to Karnak and... 
And then, you know, oh, there's no stopping these things. I love them. <clears throat> and you, what you say, one is just stones, aren't they? Big stones. Go, no, 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 no. They've got, they've got a, they're just super cool. Anyway, so what have I said? Something about Strauss, something about um, where I got the book, British Library. If you want to sign up to that, if you're interested in these things, uh, there's some good stories in them. And um, they come out every month, and it's only a tenner. Amazing. I think it's actually post-free. Um, so, oh, in the UK anyway, I can't speak for anywhere else. But yeah, I thought it was, it, it wasn't a massively original story. Um, as we see, you know, I've already talked about, I mean, Adrian Coles' story is after this one, so you could say that Adrian Coles borrowed his. Uh, it is very folk horror. I like the setting. It was sort of predictable. I mean, there was nothing startling about it, really, was there? But if you're reading your amazing stories, it was it was entertaining. It was a good old romp, I thought. I liked I liked the atmosphere. I, I thought there was going to be something more about the, the shadowy lady. <clears throat> I thought there might have been a, a kind of supernatural love interest but the story wasn't long enough for that so that's all we've got to say about the story really um and as you know i now descend into other blethering um i've been doing long walks with the um dogs at the moment um and i've i'm following the river eden um and we've had tons of rain down and all oh, the river never has been flooded flooding the fields taking big big trees loads of trees and it's 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 very boggy still underfoot lots of standing water still but it is draining i don't think it's rained for two days now so that's pretty good so we follow the river up and under the motorway and i found a golf ball under the motorway bridge how did that get there the other amazing thing is i don't know if you know what quavers are so quavers are a cheesy curl kind of crisp chip thing if you're american i suppose i don't know if you call them that uh, but they're kind of got made of bubbles i'm absolutely certain they're not very good for you um, and I hope I don't get sued by quavers. But um, I'm like looking all around, and there's lots and lots of these multi-packet packets, just the just the plastic, all all over the place. Like, really, and I thought, well, is it just a fisherman by the river? It's a good salmon river, um, who likes quavers, and he comes and he just is very careless with his wrapping. Um, and I'm thinking, nah, he's going to have to eat tons of quavers. The occasionally was a bag of Watsits. There's nothing in these bags, and you get the ripped open multi thing, and you, um, and then the quaver packets themselves, and they're stuck on the barbed wire and the fences. They're uh, <clears throat> stuck in trees, and litter the ground, and uh, and I th so it, it, it occurred to me. And Sheila said, "Well, do you remember there was a lorry got blown over in the high winds and they closed the motorway a couple of weeks ago." I think it was a quaver lorry, and it was carrying a... And I wish I'd been there, because even though they're not very good for you, I, can't, I quite like them. Uh, and so I don't think I'd have eaten all of that many, but I would have eaten one or two. But, I th but So this is the next mystery. Who ate all the quavers? There was a lot of quavers. And the mystery is solved because when we were walking the other day, a huge flock of barnacle geese lifted up, and uh, they'd been uh, eating things in the field in this swampy field and i think it was them that ate the quavers there's a lot of them they could have easily demolished the quavers i'm not sure the dogs eat them they don't really like them but um you shouldn't give dogs quavers okay because who knows what they're made of it's not they're not massively great oh i better i'm just not going to get into this okay 
I don't know what I'm talking about. A lot of the time, I don't know what I'm talking about. People say, oh, you say random things. Yes, I do. You are baiting. No, I'm not baiting people. It's just random stuff comes into my, it doesn't even go into my brain. It comes out just straight out of my mouth. Where it comes from, that's a mystery. Where does your, where's your thoughts come from? Where do you feel that you don't know what you're going to think or feel the next second? Where they come from, that's deeply mysterious. You need to be thinking about that. Well, actually, you don't. In fact, probably won't do you any harm if you never think about that in your lives. So um, that was it, and we went so far. And then I started to panic. Not massively, but I'm like, we're going on and on. There's a river. There's this hugely boggy field. And I'm, it's big, big expanse of flat. And I'm like, oh, nobody else. Nobody else the whole way. Miles. I'm like, oh, it's like something out of a flipping um, classic ghost story. I thought something was going to happen, come and pop out the river. And um, no human beings, no dogs, no nothing, just some geese, seagulls, no sheep. It's too boggy for them, no cows. I think they go there when it's a bit drier. No, I didn't see any salmon. Well, I wasn't particularly looking. Oh, yeah, I saw uh, some ducks. Um, there, was, there was a kind of a flock of golden eye, which are lovely little ducks. I think they're winter visitors to us. Um, so that was nice. If you've fallen asleep during the story and you've just woken up now, I don't know what to say. It won't go of one or two ways. You'll either be, oh, he's just talking about nothing. I can just... Because I, when I was younger, my grandfather gave me a transistor radio that I used to... No, it was a valve radio, I think. And um, I used to take it apart and uh, take the valves out look at them, put them back again. And, see. and eventually I took, and, and every time I take it more and more apart, and eventually I got to the point where it didn't work anymore. But I used to listen late at night on this. I must have been oh, 10, 11. And um, songs I remember, you can probably date when I was doing it, from the songs, there was Moon River, there was um, Rhinestone Cowboy, and um, Feeling Groovy by Simon and Garfield. Kicking around the cobblestones. I loved it. And there is, there isn't a point to this, but there is a kind of thread in that um, late, oh yeah, and Letter from America by Alistair Cook. Fantastic. The guy, and it didn't matter what he was talking about, he had such a voice. And I used to listen to it and these things late at night in the dark with my ear to the radio. And that kind of, um, if you've listened to my late night sleep radio um, YouTube channel and podcast, I suppose that I'm trying to kind of replicate that feeling. Uh, not talking about Letter from America or playing music, but doing those things. So, yeah, if you were, if you were like the younger me and um and there's a shipping forecast isn't there which is a, a radio four british radio four thing whereby they talk in this robotic voice somebody was explaining it south it's sarah north it's sarah 53 rising iceland 73 rising fastnet um you know i can't even remember them um biscay german bite and all these things, and these are places that all the ships are out. And then I would think about the sailors out there on the trawlers um, and other boats in the rolling seas, you know, in the North Sea or in the, on the Atlantic, and um, way out, especially if the weather's up and the waves, and some of those waves I've seen on 
on Instagram actually, um, probably maybe a bit on YouTube. So, whoa, cob limey, and it's just oh, and there I there I am, cozy, cozy, cozy. So I'm either doing that for you now, and you've woken up and there's this guy rambling about nothing much, and well I am, but it's not, it's inconsequential, isn't it? And um, you're like, oh, this is cozy. Or you are the one of the fourteen percent, and you're going to write a strongly worded comment. Um, not that I'm bitter. Oh, I wish I didn't take this in. Don't I don't. You know, I know this is a fault. I know that I just, uh, you know, um, I just need to let it go, let it go, let it go. So you don't even have to tell me to let it go because I know I need to let it go anyway. Let's just let it go. So you, I'm hoping you're the cozy side. I'm just there's a bit of a jaggy energy in there, isn't there? So let's just smooth that out. So none of that, and we're just being cozy. The the weather outside is frightful. They apparently banned that song, didn't they? Um, mm, no, no, I'm thinking the other one. Ooh, baby, it's cold outside. They banned that one, but the weather outside is frightful. My my memory is a bit like a jigsaw puzzle. I find pieces, but I'm not really sure how they fit together. So, um, there we are. I, I'm tired, actually. It's been a long day. So I'm, it's about, it's just after 10 p.m., but I've been busy all day. Um, and so I'm doing this now because I wanted to get it ready because I've got things to do tomorrow. So, um, where were we? Oh, yeah. The final thing to say is I'm in pain because my boy dog, Jasper, I know you like, to, I was saying to Sheila, you know, these days, because I've, now I'm working one day a week and um, doing, doing psychiatric nursing and the rest of the time I'm writing and I'm podcasting and I'm writing a series of stories set in a, in a southern English town called Ashridge, which is very strange. And it's sort of, um, sort of my influence is there. The Prisoner, I think, a bit, you know, Patrick McGowan's series. A bit. Twin Peaks, definitely. David Lynch, Mark Frost, massive fan of that. Um, um, Gary Spencer Millage's Strange Haven graphic novel. If you if you liked um, the Twin Peaks and you liked The Prisoner and you love English weirdness, then oh, Gary, Gary Spencer Millage, is, it's just fantastic. I'm a massive fanboy, always have been. Uh, it's about this guy who... Um, his life has fallen apart, so he he finds himself in this little village called Strangehaven, and um, he kind of, sort of, when it's no bubble like in the prisoner, but you can't get out really because when you drive out, you go through these little, and you end up back again where you were, and it's full of weird and wacky characters like Twin Peaks, like the prisoner, um, and so Ashridge is like that, but also my other influences. Um, Mark Denlievsky's *The House of Leaves*, which is a fantastic story about a house where they go spelunking in the house, and the um, got to be careful what you say there, how you say that. But um, and uh, they, they find levels and corridors and passages and rooms that rearrange themselves as if there's some intelligence down there, but they never actually meet anybody. And I think that's its wonderfulness because, as you know, um, I'm also big fan of Robert Aikman and Robert Aikman's um, off-kilter weirdness how he takes normal life like kind of strange haven 
like um, uh, the prisoner sort of isn't really normal life. It's it's so a little tiny bit normal life in that it's supposed to be this little friendly village where everybody's nice to each other. But um, Aikman takes the suburban ordinariness and just shifts it, blue shifts it, and um, it becomes pretty unnerving, and you don't know why. And I think also, you know, Danielewski's House of Leaves does that for me a little bit as well, because the mundanity is, is this is an all-American, I think it's somewhere in the Midwest, very down-to-earth sort of thing, and then there's this weird shit happening under the house. Um, so that's what I'm writing, and sometimes it's hard to write. Sometimes some of the stories I do, and I'm like, it's like pulling teeth, honestly. And I get the first draft down. Once I got the first draft down, I'm rocking. But um, with this, it's just flowing. So I want to get down to it every day. I don't know what it's going to be like in the end. You never know. I'm getting a first draft. The first draft is always ghastly. Um, you look at it, but it's just getting it down on paper. So I don't know when that's going to come up. It's kind of postponed. I've got I had a I had a volume of, sh of like ghost stories, weird stories, Dark fairy stories come out called Twisted Fairy Tales. I've written most of that, but I need more to write. And Ashridge is kind of taking me over. So that's what I'm doing at the moment. And I'm podcasting. I'm doing this channel, Classic Ghosts, and I'm doing um, Classic de Detective Stories. I'm outsourcing a lot of it on detectives. Because um, I suppose with with all of this i'm pleasing myself obviously D don't think i'm completely being altruistic because i'm not um but also and so it has to kind of have an audience it has to uh pay in some way um which is going to lead me to my final point by the time i get to the final point the people who are my, my key messages have all gone but um and the ones who are sticking by me i'm a loyal cohort um but um who had, who don't need to hear it um but you see, i'm getting tired so 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 so, so yes a detective so i yeah people like uh, don't ever do an american accent again to be fair you know certain other people have said don't do our accent either uh, so that limits me to doing this one um, I can do posh ones. Posh people don't seem to mind. They're lovely. They don't seem to mind. Um, they just go, oh, it's fine. You pretend to be posh. We know you're not. And it, we know it's just a, a pretense. But uh, as long as we're clear about that, then fair enough. Um, so, but, um, you know, I think the Irish and the Scots, I've not had anybody Welsh people complain. Certainly I've had some complaints about my Southwest accent. I've had complaints about my northern accent, which is extraordinary because it's my real one. Um, but, um, but, so I don't do American. I've I've kind of outsourced it, and I'm trying to find some great. And I think I found some great American male voices. I should say, skipping back, my dream is to do. I don't know if you've come across um, Limetown or Alice Isn't Dead, and these are kind of. Or, or, or in fact the Lovecraft investigations and these are audio drama podcasts I would love to do Ashridge as an audio drama so, but I need English people and I need uh, particularly English female voices um, I, I'm no English male voices but I don't know any who can act actually so who can voice act and who have who, who can supply me with lovely clean good quality audio 
remotely if necessary, or we could all meet up at um, Costa's, um, the drive-through Costa's just off London Road. If you want, we can. I'm joking, obviously. Um, I don't don't really go there. I walk past it, but I don't go there. I'm not complaining about it. I'm just saying I don't go. Um, so where was I? I'm petering out. You think you fall asleep? You fall asleep. What about me? Um, I've, I I've never fall asleep while fall asleep, fallen asleep while narrating a story. Um, now, what is the final point? This is the point that's wasted on everybody who's listened thus far, which is there have been complaints about. There's always complaints. There's been complaints about ads, both the fact they exist and that what they are, what they're for. So. Let's talk about what they are, first of all. I have no control or even knowledge of what ads they put on my podcast. Um, and that is really either YouTube or my current post, uh, podcast host, which is Spotify. So I, I don't, I, I, you know, I, I mean, and if you think it through, I can go, right, okay, for Malaysia, I think it, uh, what we need is um, something advertising, cooking oil. And then, um, oh, yeah, for the Australians, we better have um, a truck hire. And then in Mexico, you know, of course I don't sit and plan. I don't know what you want to be sold, if you do want to be sold anything. Oh, but YouTube and Spotify, no, believe me. Uh, that's because um, that comes to the second one. Um, why have ads at all? So, I'd, you know, if you don't like Joe Biden or Donald Trump or whatever, remember, I'm English. I, I, you know, I've got nothing to do with them anyway. I don't put them on. If somebody thinks you want to hear that from your data, what you've done on the Internet, somebody's collected all of that and has profiled you and is trying to do that. So that is an issue for you to take up with them. Um, second point is, why should there be ads at all? Well, nothing in this life is free. And when you watch your TV, if you watch it for free, you're paying through it by ads. You know, you buy a newspaper, but also it's subsidized by ads. A lot of these free papers are paid completely by ads. You know, so nothing is free. And if if you're not paying for it directly with cash, very often you're paying through it by giving your attention to these selling messages, okay? And that's how that works. If you don't like the ads at all, so, so some people are like, well, I just want to fall asleep. I want you to provide me with hours of content exactly as I want it for free. I don't want any ads. I want black screen. I want this. I want this. I want it to be so long. I want, don't want any blathering in it. I want this. I want this. I want this. Yeah, and I want it for nothing. The world doesn't work like that. But I have a deal for you. If you've listened this far, and if you are somebody who hates ads, um, and I do, I, I pay YouTube Premium because I don't want to hear the ads. Um, I, I, funnily enough, I did have Spotify, but I don't at the moment because I've gone over to Kobo's because I wanted high quality, the 24-bit music, but that's by the by. Um, so become a patron sign up with my Patreon. I've got a library of MP3 files of all the stories I've ever done. So that's hundreds of them. It's about 250 plus, maybe 200, 200 plus certainly, go on 250 stories. You can download them. You can listen to them whenever you want. There are no ads on them, okay? And 
you will, if you're a patron, you will get to hear the stories before they're released. No ads. So if you don't like ads, here's my deal. Sign up as a patron. Remember, nothing is free. You support me. That, of course, patron take a cut. Everybody takes a cut. You know, nothing is free. I don't want to leave you with this thing, but that's just the deal for you. You know, if you don't, really don't want to add, sign up as a patron and you can have all the stories ad free. Um, and you can keep them. You can send them to your friends. You can pirate them on the internet, but I don't think anybody else would want them. But um, there we are. That's it. What a deal. Become a patron. No ads. If you don't like ads. If you like ads, keep listening to the ads. And that is it, I think. Oh, yeah, I was going to tell you about my boy dog, Jasper. Got back to it, didn't I? So he, I'm, he's, I've got a sore pain in my tummy because he bit my fatness. I've got a little bit of fatness on my tummy, you see. And um, for some reason, he, he doesn't like it. I think it's a health message. He's like, and I thought, what? He's like, nipped me on it. And I'm like, Jasper, I thought you loved me. And he's like, I love you. And that's why I need you to look after your health, mate. So you can be here with me for longer. And I thought that's really thoughtful. The other thing he does with me is he cobs me. I didn't know this was a thing. And he gets his front teeth and he goes, uh, and, and he kind of skims my arms and uh, thing. And apparently this is called cobbing. It's like with, co have you eat a corn on the cob? I don't particularly eat it like that. But um, but that's what he's doing. And it's he's trying to get rid of parasites, fleas. So I have imaginary conversations with him because I just spend my time with the dogs, honestly. I do this and I spend my time with the dogs. I speak to Sheila sometimes. And um, and I said in my imaginary, I said, Jasper, I don't have fleas. And he goes, yeah, you do, though. This is him in my imaginary conversation. I go, Jasper, I don't. He goes, yeah, how else do you explain the state? If you look at your man, you must have fleas. So again, once he's looking out for my health and he's defleeing me. Uh, and, and if he catches a little bit of fatness, he nips it in order for me to um, watch my diet. Anyway, I think I've run out now of even blather so i wish you thank you for putting up with all my oh yeah i've got to say thank you for the condolence messages so many people reached out to me on the passing of my mother and um and and gave me the condolences and uh you know i didn't reply to all of them um and i'm sorry about that but there was quite a lot of them and i have not been in the best I'm I'm all right, but I'm, I'm not being in, you know, I've been, well, you know, it, it, it stirs you up emotionally, doesn't it? So um, I haven't been in a fantastic way to, to write lots of things, but um, I do appreciate it. It meant, it meant a lot to me, you know, so thank you very much for that. Um, and thank you for putting up with all of this. I realise these, it depends on the mood you get me in and um, a bit narky, a bit snarky, as you might say. Snarky's more sarcastic, I think, but I think I'm just mm, grumpy. I'm a grumpy old geezer, and but sometimes I'm happy, um, and uh, I talk nonsense, but I speak wisdom as well. I, I should just have one where I just talk wisdom, none of the nonsense, just wisdom, and you'll go out feeling your soul will be just in a warmer, cuddlier place because I'll say you love, tell you lovely things. Anyway, I've absolutely run out of stuff now. I'm kind of, you know, when you get, you're sleepy, sleepy, and you're just talking absolute nonsense. That's me now. Okay, so good night, everybody. I hope you're asleep. I hope I didn't wake you. And I hope if I did wake you, I worked like the shipping forecast, and you felt cozy, cozy, cozy. And uh, we will meet again, I am sure.
here, same place, same time. Everybody dies, don't they? Everybody Some come dies, back, don't they? Isn't that Everybody so? Come back, don't they? Isn't that Everybody so? Come back, don't they? Isn't that Everybody so? Come back, don't they? Isn't that so? Come back, don't they? Isn't that so?